Hello and welcome to the first of a pair of linked podcasts from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I'm Howard Ryland, I'm the editor of the college's newsletter and I'm very pleased to have here with me today Professor Graham Thornycroft, who is Professor of Community Psychiatry at King's College London. Graham, thank you for joining me today. This first podcast will deal with the first chapter that you authored for the recent CMO's report on public mental health that focused on stigma and discrimination. These are very important topics affecting mental health service users. And I'd like to start by asking, what are the components of stigma and discrimination? Well, thank you, Howard, and good morning to you and to all the listeners. So uh, you join us on a beautiful sunny May morning in uh, near Tower Bridge in the centre of London. And the background to this is that every year the chief medical officer, who is the head doctor within our Ministry of Health uh, for England, produces a public health report. And just recently, for the first time ever, uh, her report, her name is Professor Dame Sally Davis, her report was about public mental health. And it's a really good read. It's available free as a PDF on the web. And one of the chapters is about stigma and discrimination. So maybe I can tell you a little bit about this. The way in which um, I, with my colleagues at King's College London, have been working uh, on stigma is to see this as composed of three distinct and interrelated elements, namely knowledge, attitudes, and behaviour. Knowledge means how much we all know people in all communities worldwide about mental illness and the answer is very little and indeed a lot of the information that people have is factually incorrect for example stereotypes about violence the second way we understand stigma is about attitudes namely the feelings the emotions we have towards people with mental illness and at present the research shows that virtually everywhere those feelings are predominantly negative towards people with mental health problems And the third domain is about behaviour. For example, if you apply for a job and the employer knows you have experienced mental illness, will that act against you? Again, the evidence at the moment is yes, it usually is a harmful form of discrimination. So just a short uh, example of this. Uh, When I was very small, I was about three, uh, my mother, who was a community nurse working in England, developed a severe episode of depression. She had various tablets which didn't help her at all, And indeed, she went on to have, as an outpatient, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, just three treatments, in fact. And then she recovered. And not long ago, I said to her, when you went back to work, Mum, when you wanted to carry on working as a district nurse, a community nurse, what did you say to your boss? And she said, are you daft? Absolutely nothing, because I wouldn't have got my job back if I had disclosed the nature of my reason for being absent from work. So it's that behavioural domain, if you get jobs, if you get partnerships and so on, which I think is the most important of the three, namely knowledge, attitudes and behaviour. Thank you. And how has discrimination experienced by service users changed over recent years? Well, um, it's interesting because we've now got data to look at that question directly. Until about 10 years ago, there weren't really any scales to measure discrimination related to mental illness, nor indeed was there much research interest in this. I spent a bit of time writing a book which is called Shunned, and it's published by Oxford University Press, and I then decided we should actually begin to do this type of work. So we created a scale which is called DISC, D-I-S-C, 
And we now have information from over 40 countries around the world, as well as over time in England. Now, since 2008 in England, we've had an amazingly uh, great campaign called Time to Change. And what we've done every year in evaluating this is to phone up a thousand people across England who are receiving mental health treatment and care. A different thousand, randomly selected. And we're able to say quite precisely whether experiences of discrimination reported directly by people with mental illness are changing or not. And the answer is, we'd hoped over the first four years to see a 5% drop in total reported discrimination. In fact, we saw an 11% drop. So we have seen, in general terms, a big reduction, or at least a moderately sized reduction in discrimination in the first period of the Time to Change campaign. Nevertheless, it's not a consistent pattern. And we've also seen, since the recession, attacks upon the welfare benefit entitlements of people with disabilities, including people with mental illness-related disabilities, and indeed discrimination reported about welfare benefits has increased over the last six years or so, although the total rating of disability has markedly fallen. So those are some impressive figures about the reduction in stigma over time. But how does England compare to other countries? Well, let's just make clear that the Time to Change campaign is only for England. In fact, there's a sister or parallel campaign in Scotland called See Me. And there are a number of other campaigns in about 10 countries around the world at the national level to reduce stigma. Now, the overall picture is a pretty miserable one. We know, for example, from data from the USA, from Pesco Solido, and from Germany, from Angermeyer, and also from Stuart in Canada, that there's been either no change or, in fact, a deterioration in discrimination and stigma, certainly towards people with severe mental illness in recent years in countries where there has not been an anti-stigma campaign. And we also know from a paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry by Meta et al. that before we had the Time to Change campaign in England, stigma was also getting worse here. So I think it's fair to say now that England is really in the vanguard internationally in stigma reduction. We do have campaigns, for example, in Denmark, in Sweden, in Canada, New Zealand, Scotland as well. But none of those have had anything like the level of detail in their evaluation about the impact. So um, without you know, any undue modesty, I think England is one of the countries leading the worldwide fight against stigma and discrimination. Your chapter in the report had some figures that may be surprising to some people about the discrimination that many mental health service users report experiencing from healthcare professionals. What is the impact of discrimination by healthcare professionals and how can this be reduced? So, rightly or wrongly, in survey after survey, when service users are asked who discriminates against you, often they will name healthcare professionals as one of the groups who are most discriminatory. Sometimes, for example, this would be a question of comorbidity, that somebody may have rheumatoid arthritis, go to see the GP, be treated for that condition, but not also be assessed for any anxiety or depression. And of course, people with long-term physical conditions have about twice the rate of general common mental illness than the general population. It may be 15 to 20% in the whole population. It may be 30, 35% among people, for example, with hypertension, diabetes, or asthma. 
So it may be a sort of failure to assess, but it may also be more noxious than that. Uh, so somebody going to an emergency department or casualty, for example, with uh, a lower abdominal pain, uh, the doctor has a quick look at the notes before seeing the patient, sees that they are somebody receiving psychiatric treatment or maybe having had psychiatric treatment in the past, and then may more often think, aha, it's in the mind, it's not a real appendicitis. Now, this is not a trivial issue. For example, there are many large-scale studies, some by Ben Druss, now at Amory University in Atlanta, looking at the consequences. And one of these studies looked at people with myocardial infarctions, i.e. heart attacks, across America. And they found that compared with people with only having heart attacks, people who had heart attacks and mental illness were investigated less, had less intensive interventions, and died more often, taking account of all other risk factors. Now, until recently, many governments thought mental illness is a sort of mild condition, it's not a high priority, it's not a killer disease. But we now have accumulating evidence to the contrary. We've had large-scale studies from Scandinavia by Walbeck et al., from Western Australia by Lawrence et al., showing that on average people with severe mental illness die up to 20 years younger than their counterparts in the whole population without mental illness. Now that's shocking enough. We've had in the last couple of months, published in the British Journal of Psychiatry by Fekadu and colleagues, even more shocking data, shown that in Ethiopia, where life expectancy is already relatively short, the people with mental illness die up to 30 years younger than their compatriots. So the impact can be neglect of physical problems, but worse, accumulatively, that can lead to earlier death rates. So there's clearly a lot of work to be done on this issue worldwide. I wanted to move on now to talk about what role the media plays in shaping public attitudes to mental health. So the media is absolutely critical. So if, for example, you ask people about what images they have of mental illness or treatment facilities, quite often they'll refer to films. They'll talk about one floor of the cuckoo's nest and so on. Because most people won't necessarily have ever been into a, a psychiatric ward. So like the rest of us, they rely upon the mass media for images of different realities. Now, until recently, the media have been pretty resistant to any engagement in stigma issues. I remember, for example, a meeting with some tabloid newspapers recently with the Time to Change campaign, and they were being attacked for calling people psychos and schizos, and they really didn't want to change their habits. But what we've seen over the last six or seven years now, slowly, is a positive change. Uh, every couple of years, for example, uh, with colleagues at King's College London here, we analyse cuttings of newspaper articles, both local and national newspapers, and then we can compare that over time. And what we've seen is a gradual increase in the percentage of all newspaper articles about mental illness which are anti-stigmatising. And indeed, last year, for the first time, there were more anti-stigmatising than stigmatising articles. So you can change the media. It requires a great deal of patience. It means working directly with them on good practice guidelines, for example, about suicide reporting. 
And what we've seen over the last decade, I'd say now in England, is far fewer huge headlines about homicidal maniacs and schizos and so on. And where there are tragic incidents, these are now covered, I think, more responsibly, usually in less sensationalised ways. So the role of the media is critical, and with care and with patience, you can help colleagues in the media to act far more responsibly over a long period. So it seems that things are moving at least in the right direction with regards to the media. You mentioned Time to Change and other anti-stigma campaigns in other countries. How effective are anti-stigma campaigns in achieving their aims? So there are two things here. First, short-term blips, you know, uh, something on the radio or the newspaper for a few days is pretty useless. In fact, it's money wasted. You have to have a long-term commitment over years, and then we can see that you can make substantial improvement. But let's look at the active ingredient, the main element which has to be at the core of these interventions. And there's now very clear information from about four recent literature reviews that this is social contact with people with mental illness. What does that mean? It means knowingly having some sort of contact with a person who's behaving reasonably and who either now has a mental health condition or has experience in the past of mental illness. Now, I say knowingly because, of course, all of us have contact all the time with people who've had mental illness, but we don't know that because they're actively keeping it quiet. And the concealment is usually how people react for fear of, for example, damage to the reputation if they speak openly about mental illness. So the critical issue here is disclosure. That means some people being able to talk about their condition, allowing more and more people a type of positive cycle to disclose, and therefore people around them knowingly having social contact. And that's exactly what we're trying to achieve at the moment in time to change. And in fact, we're seeing now, for example, many prominent people across many sectors of athletics, sport, media, politics in England now feeling able to speak openly about their condition. And Stephen Fry is one wonderful example with his over 7 million Twitter followers, but there are many. And indeed, there was a a critical moment two years ago in Parliament when four MPs, in an unscripted way, felt able to speak openly about their experience of mental illness. And so I think this country, that's another example about how we're in the lead. But if you go to most other countries, Uh, you'll find nobody in the public eye would want to speak about such experiences. There's actually one very notable exception, and this is the Prime Minister of Norway in 1998, a man called Kvel Bondevik. And he had just been working too hard, he'd had several bereavements. Quite quickly, he became profoundly depressed. And one morning, he couldn't get out of bed. He called in his Deputy Prime Minister. He said, I'm very sorry, I can't be Prime Minister today. You'll have to take over. And the deputy said to him, well, this is a bit of a surprise, Uh, what shall I tell the people? And he said, we will tell it like it is. And so the deputy announced to the Norwegian population, unfortunately, the prime minister is not well, he has depression, he's getting treatment. And indeed, within two months, he recovered and could return to his duties. And two years later, in 2000, he stood again as prime minister and he was re-elected. So it is possible to come out and be open, but it's still unusual in most countries. These are really inspiring stories of personal bravery and it's also reassuring to hear that anti-stigma campaigns can be effective. 
What do you think needs to happen now for the situation to improve in the future? So we're beginning to make modest but important progress in this country. I mentioned earlier that in the first four years of the Time to Change campaign, we showed a reduction in discrimination by 11%, which confounds those who say stigma doesn't change, it's somehow inbuilt to our tribal nature. On the other hand, it means that still 89% of that discrimination continued. So this means we need a longer, in fact a very long-term commitment to this, as we have shown towards getting rid of anti-Semitism or racism or homophobia and other forms of discrimination. So far, we haven't had an even rate of progress across the whole population. For example, different black and minority ethnic groups have not always shown the same reduction in discrimination as in the population as a whole, so we need a specific focus there in the coming years. A second priority we mentioned a moment ago is to have a real attack upon discrimination by staff in the healthcare professions. And we're just beginning to understand how to do that. There's a very nice paper published at the end of 2014 by NAAK, K-N-A-A-K et al., showing a way in which we can use social contact in a particular multimodal structured way which can be effective in reducing stigma among physical health and mental health care professionals. But there's still a way to go. A further gap is knowledge about what to do in low and in middle income countries. While we know that 85% of the world's population live in these low and middle income countries, we actually have very little data, about eight studies only, which are intervention studies intended to reduce stigma. So we need to invest to build up an evidence base to know what works in low and middle income countries, link that to the evidence base from high income countries so we can go ahead in a concerted attack on stigma and discrimination related to mental health worldwide. Graham, thank you very much for this comprehensive and eloquent overview of the developments in this area, the reasons that we have to be hopeful and the number of challenges that we still face. Thank you very much for listening. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, then please also listen to the follow-up podcast, which is on the second chapter authored by Professor Thornycroft on Minding the Gap. Thank you.